The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Boston on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Last week ended on a string of strong U.S. economic data. Numbers for the U.S. housing market and consumer sentiment came in with some pretty impressive superlatives. Housing starts surged to the highest level in 13 years, while the Consumer Comfort Index is at a peak not seen in over 19 years. This week, that streak continued with existing home sales coming in at a two-year high, while the number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits rose by less than forecast. So does all of this recent data justify the market's strong start to 2020? I discussed it with Neil Dutta, head of U.S. economics at Renaissance Macro Research, and I started by asking whether this rally was really driven by fundamentals or expansion of the Fed balance sheet. Well, I think that, I mean, there isn't much evidence um, other than ridiculous sort of linear correlation charts about, you know, the Fed driving everything. I mean, I think the Fed is a small factor in putting sort of a floor under risk sentiment. But ultimately, I mean, if you look at uh, how the markets have behaved over the last year, they've generally been rallying um, on days of good economic and earnings right. news and also uh, on days of uh, detente around the trade issue. So um, I think those have been the primary drivers of, of U.S. equities in the last year. I think the Fed has a much smaller role to play. People love to talk about innings or late cycle or whatever that is. Do you, when you look at the data, do you see any particular reason that we must be getting near the end of this expansion for some reason or another? No. I mean, I don't think, I mean, the expansion is um, old in terms of its duration, but it's still relatively young at heart when you look at like cyclicals, components of the economy. So things like, I mean, you mentioned housing earlier. I mean, residential investment is still well below what you'd expect uh, in terms of longer run GDP, um, auto buying even. I mean, we keep lamenting the sort of weak capital spending environment. Inventories are still quite lean. So there's no sort of area of cyclical excess in the U.S. economy right now, which what goes down if you have a recession? So uh, I don't really see it. Do you see in some of these cyclical areas and some of these questions like uh, business investment, do you see any prospect for reacceleration? Or is it kind of going to be like what we've seen over the last decade, which is not terrible, but not amazing? So this sort of like, well, mm, a I mean, little bit Well, it's all about what's priced in and yeah. what the likely outcome is going to be, right? right? So if you look at your own Bloomberg News con- consensus for GDP, sure. the, uh, the consensus has growth uh, basically running under 2% all year. To me, that's an, a, an extremely conservative forecast considering, you know, you mentioned CapEx. Two-thirds of the drop in CapEx in the third quarter was aircraft investment and mining structures. So oil prices have rebounded. So my guess is that mining structures won't be as much of a drag this year as it was last year. So a headwind that's fading is a tailwind realized. Inventories are likely to swing 
into a more positive direction. You know, commercial real estate is likely to be a little bit stronger as well. So I think um, 2020, you're actually going to see a little bit more improvement from those cyclical sectors. Uh, and that should, I think, push estimates for GDP growth higher this year as the year progresses. And on the residential investment side, or residential housing, uh, are we still underhoused? I mean, I know that was a big bull case or big uh, argument from the bulls for several years that there's this inherent tailwind because we went so we had housing got so depressed post crisis is that still the sort of natural thing that's going to keep that market well we're high? definitely sure I mean if you like look at demographics yeah. we're still short several million households but um, yeah I mean I do think that we're in a sort of excess demand environment for housing and that's going to continue to underpin construction for a number of years but the onus isn't on the bulls right Joe right. I mean on the housing story. Right. I mean, the housing data in the last week has basically made, in my view, the recession tourists of 2019 basically dead. I mean, that this is the last week was the week they died. Um, you don't have recessions with new home sales running up 20 percent year over year. You don't have recessions with housing starts up double digits year over year. I mean, forget even with right. the weather building permits then. OK, not weather sensitive. Uh, those are leading indicators, right? It wasn't long ago that people used to make the argument that housing was the quintessential leading indicator for the economy. Uh, I'd like to know where those folks are now. Uh, well, we'll certainly uh, reach out to them. Uh, one point that some of the bears have made, or some people talk about maybe at the end of the expansion, some of the labor data is not turned down, but growth in uh, total jobs slowing a little bit. We saw a drop in job openings with last week's JOLTS report. Does that concern you at all? Do you feel like we're sort of topping out in that respect? Well, the JOLTS data came out, I think that was a November data point. We've obviously had some jobs numbers come out since then. They've been pretty healthy. Jobless claims are still quite low. But I think job openings are basically a proxy for business sentiment, right? So when business sentiment is stronger, you have more openings being advertised. And when it's weaker, they take some of those openings away. I mean, look at what firms are actually doing. The hiring rate is basically flat relative to last year, even though openings are down a lot relative to last year. So it tells you, in, in my view, that uh, it's more likely uh, that as business sentiment recovers, you'll see some pickup in openings as well. And that recovery that you see in business sentiment, is that a phase one trade deal dividend, so to speak? Is I mean, that so the driver I, of it? I mean, I'm a big believer in the idea that financial conditions are an important driver of business sentiment and investment, right? I mean, to me, there's nothing about a, a share price of a company that's telling the CEO of that company something about right. his firm he doesn't already know, or his or her firm. Um, so I think it's sort of this macro risk aggregator, and the fact that uh, stock prices are up and buoyant um, on this sort of fading tail risk uh, is a reason why business sentiment is picking up. So financial conditions are an important driver of business sentiment. Something like, okay, so obviously we have the election. That's a major source of uncertainty in 2020. Also, obviously, today with the headlines about the new coronavirus. Do you expect that to have an impact of dampening uh, business investment at all? You know, I don't think so. I mean, we've, ha we've had some similar scares. I mean, there was an Ebola right. uh, issue several years ago. But, I mean, if you look at tourist arrivals from China into the U.S., that's actually been declining as a share uh, of, of, of U.S. tourism uh, over the last several years. So I don't expect it to have a significant impact. Then we had a wide-ranging conversation with Cowan Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Jeffrey Solomon, touching on everything from his market outlook to Gen Z. We started by asking Jeffrey where he thinks we are in the economic cycle. I mean, I, you know, in terms of this recovery, I, I still think it has some legs. I mean, I, I can't, I'm not smart enough to know whether or not we're in the seventh inning or the fifth inning, but I think when you have a coordinated central bank easing, you know, that is a certainty. You know, they're, they're basically, you're, you're basically saying, we don't want you to save money in, in banks and depository institutions. We want you to put money to work and investment. 
And I think that's what you're seeing. I mean, I, I, we see it all the time. Folks are barbelling their portfolios. They, they may carry extra cash around, but they're looking at riskier investments and they're buying equities because there is no alternative if you're mm. expecting to make a rate of return. And that's just not individual accounts. I think that's pension funds. I think it's sovereign wealth funds. And so, you know, are we in the fifth inning or the seventh inning? I don't know. I, I'm looking at, at, at central bank activity as a good indicator. So you could, one could make the argument that this sort of uh, forced barbell that people have been pushed into where hold a lot of cash so they have liquidity and they're protected while also going pretty far out on the risks, risk spectrum has been kind of the defining characteristic for the last 10 years, uh, arguably, post-crisis. And what you're saying is there's just no sign that that's changing it. No, I mean, I, I think if, you, if you're looking at, for, for example, in the U.S., if you're looking yeah. at a super low unemployment, who would have thought that we'd be in an easing cycle with unemployment at these levels? Right. Why is that? And I think people are looking out and saying, okay, well, I'm pretty sure I've got a job. I, 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 no, I may not be, like, ebullient about where the world is headed, but I'm gainfully employed. And so I can, I, I got my cash nest egg just in case things go crazy, but I can probably afford to take a little bit of risk. Yeah. And I think that's what you're seeing. I, I just, I don't think it's anything more complicated than that. You know, we're living in a time now where, you know, the average American actually has more exposure to the U.S. financial market than maybe at any other time in history. Mm. And people don't focus on that because they don't really look at how much U.S. equities are owned by pension funds. Mm. Yeah. So we, when was the last time we talked about the fact that pension funds were underfunded? Mm. Been a while. Why? Because equities have rallied. Mm. Right. So they're less underfunded than they used to be. And so you, as the boomers move into the, their twilight years, they're actually their balance sheets, if you include their pension fund assets and their 401ks, have never really looked better. Hmm. And that's a very different dynamic than maybe the one we were talking about five years ago. Right. right? And so I just think there's a right. lot of reasons for the U.S. equity yeah. market in particular to continue. Certainly we're in election year. The president yeah. would like to see that happen. Right. Uh, and, and we're getting that central bank uh, a, a bolster, uh, yeah. even though we're in a low rate. Well, let's talk about point. some of the specific issues out there. Obviously, we had the signing of the phase one trade deal, which, mm-hmm. uh, depending on, on your perspective, is either the most momentous thing to happen to trade or not. But one thing that we've seen over the last year and a half or so that, that we've been through this is sort of this uh, decline in CapEx spending, uh, sort of a, a little bit of tamping down in uh, CEO sentiment. Um, do you think that with the resolution, or at least the, 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 the first phase of this resolution in the trade, that we'll see an uptick in that sentiment? And long term, are we ex- going to expect sort of a fundamental change in how we view companies that are expo- multinational companies that are exposed to the trade environment? You know, that's a great question. So CEO sentiment, yeah, I think has probably improved here because mm-hmm. by and large, it looks like people are laying down their arms for the time being in mm-hmm. the trade war, though it's it's not like we're going to roll back tariffs. So we're still going to be living in a world where we have significant amounts of goods uh, and services uh, under tariff on both sides. Mm-hmm. So and I think, you know, uh, the Trump administration has said that it's going to sort of take up situations with with Europe. Europe's got to go through Brexit. Yeah. So it's not exactly as if it's so hunky-dory that CEOs can stop worrying about uh, putting capital to work. CapEx is going to be, I think, tamped down a little bit by some of that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good. On the whole, it's better that we have phase one. But phase one is a very narrow yeah. uh, you know, set of agreements. Mm-hmm. It's better to have it than not to have it. Right. Uh, but it's not like all of a sudden we're waking up and, and CEOs are sort of ebullient all over again. And, right. and, 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 and I, don't, I don't think you're going to see this massive upspend in CapEx. All right. Well, I wanted, I'd, I'd like to hear what your clients are doing. Um, are they getting ready to spend? And if so, on what? I mean, hmm. would they be looking to buy their companies? Would they be looking to build out their facilities? Uh, how, how are they planning to deploy cash and put some money to work? Yeah, I, I think... 
Uh, so it depends on the corporate industry. Corporate clients, yeah. First of all. I, I think I think it depends on the industry. Okay. Uh, but I do think that corporate balance sheets, people have a lot of capital yeah. uh, to put to work. I, I think there's definitely some concern, and I've heard in a number of industries that asset prices, particularly stock prices or the value of people's equities, particularly in the private market, is is high or maybe overinflated. Uh, I don't know when that goes down because everybody knows that private equity has a lot of money to spend and everybody knows that corporate, our corporate clients have a lot of money to spend. Uh, they're just waiting for prices to come in. Well, generally speaking, that, that has to give, right? Those private market valuations and sometimes public market valuations reflect the fact that there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Mm. So I think people will be tactical. And I, it's, it, you, you, I think that's really the watchword. You know, if there's an asset that you have to have that you think you can demonstrate significant growth uh, or, or take out significant costs to drive mm-hmm. your bottom line, you should do that. Uh, and you shouldn't really wait for prices to come in. And, and okay. those companies that are seeing those yeah. strategic opportunities are taking advantage of it. Our M&A backlog right. at Callan has actually never been bigger. So, hmm. you know, we, we continue yeah. to see significant activity. You were at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in yeah. San Francisco where tons of news and deals and stuff get announced. What did you take away from that experience? What's it, what excites you? So, you know, we've been on the tear for the last 10 years of the growth in biotechnology yeah. and tools and diagnostics. And I think everybody's always worried that that's going to end. I right. just tell you, we've seen some amazing companies, both private and public companies. There'll be a lot of financing that gets done, I think, particularly in the first half of this year. The science that we're seeing and the, commercial, the commercialization of that science is really uh, picking up speed. And, and I can just see for the next five or 10 years, we talk about personalized medicine in a very, you know, sort of obtuse way, but I'm looking at companies that can really drill in on how we can deliver personalized medicine, uh, you know, gene therapies and things like that for disease states that we've just begun to uncover. And I I just, it's an incredible uh, revolution. We will look back on this time period and say, wow, this is probably the biggest single advancement in medicine, Mm. modern medicine, uh, maybe in our lifetimes. You're clearly very excited, and your eyes just light up when you talk about it. It kind of reminds me of how people were talking about cannabis not so long ago. <laughs> I mean, it's the, a the little bubble, different. It's a little bit different, but that bubble has burst. We know that. And um, long term, I know that you're optimistic because you believe it will be legalized federally. What does... What happens in the meantime? What does 2020 bring for the sector? I think there will be some consolidation in the sector. And I think it's really a tale of, of, of two cities, if you will, or two geographies. Um, outside the United States, capital was abundant because you could engage in raising money for, for, for a lot of companies that weren't under the U.S. federal regulations. Inside the U.S., those companies were largely capital starved because yes. a, right. a lot of folks couldn't do it. So as a result, when you look at the MSO's performance, right, the U.S. operators, they're actually doing pretty well. You know, they, they've had to build legitimate business models that uh, where they drive returns on equity because they've had to put it to work uh, judiciously versus some of the larger non-U.S. players have had a lot of capital. And they've really chosen a path towards, you know, global domination hmm. and building, trying to build massive brands very quickly. That has to get rationalized. OK, uh, there are well capitalized players out there. The, the better capitalized you are, the more likely you are to be able to acquire things. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the early days of the Internet. There will be winners. There will be losers. Uh, but this, this business is not going away. Cannabis is going to be, uh, it already is a global phenomenon. It's going right. to be a global agro business uh, that grows significantly over the next decade. And, and if you pick the right kind of companies with the right kind of management teams, you're going to make money. So, so let's talk about another theme here. I mean, we've been talking a lot about Apple being an all-time high, Qualcomm, a lot of the chip makers and the cloud companies. And all this seems to be predicated on this potential rollout of 5G, specifically here in the U.S., 
Are you seeing opportunities there, not necessarily just with the hardware and the chip makers, but with maybe the cloud companies that could sort of be beneficiaries as well? Yeah, well, so one of the things that's un unleashing this ability to do like personalized medicine, for mm -hmm. example, is the fact that we have the cloud mm -hmm. and we have cloud computing and massive amounts of uh, uh, technologies that can crunch massive amounts of data. Uh, just that in and of itself is an enabler. And we look at tech-enabled services and how tech is changing the landscape in each of our industries. And, and so I would just say to you, there's a ton to be done, not just in the build-out of 5G mm -hmm. uh, and LTE, but I would think any services that, that, that require or, or, or that utilize broadband capability, uh, what, we're, what we're seeing over the top is incredible. It's going to change, the, you know, it's going to continue to change the way that people consume media. Uh, in this country and and all and globally and, and I think we're a little spoiled here, uh, you know. So we see uh, actually other parts of the world that aren't quite at 5G. And so when you think about global rollout of 5G mm -hmm. and global consumption of media product uh, and broadband services, like we, we we get it here in New York, we get it here in the United States, and 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 we stream on any device. Most of the world doesn't get the chance to do that. Yeah. And so I just think there's a huge uh, tailwind behind that as well. So obviously investors and corporates, they want to know what to sell to the burgeoning population of people who are all younger than those of us at this table, millennials, and increasingly they're pretty old too, and uh, Gen Z. <laughs> don't tell my kids that. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> uh, they are. But uh, no, I don't. Uh, but sure, but what do you? What, how do you see are the big things that like everyone's going to be racing to, whether it's media or consumption trends that are targeted around this group of uh, this cohort that's just going to have more and more money? So I'll just say, you know, in the next decade, you know, let's just say that uh, seventy percent of the consumption world will be millennial, yeah. or Gen Z, all right. Uh, but the global sort of, if you, if you look at when the global wealth transfer actually occurs, it's probably not for another 30 years. Hmm. That's a long time. Right. That's a long time. Wow. But, but you got to put your stake in the ground now. Here's what we know about millennials. And again, it's like what I know about my kids. Uh, they fundamentally believe that we live in a post-truth world, which means they're going to consume the news they want to consume, and they'll make their own determinations as to what they think is authentic. Historically, when we grew up, media told us who Which should be voice. influencing. Right. Now, millennials choose influencers, and then those influencers have yeah. uh, the ability right. to influence. Very different consumption right. patterns off the back of that. And yeah. so when you're thinking about building your global brands or you're thinking about how you cater to that, you've got to recognize there's some fundamental shifts right. in consuming patterns, and that's what we think is, is going to be the, the watchword for the next you know, few years. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Then we spoke with the founder of a startup trying to end the nation's housing crisis. With rents continuing to skyrocket and expensive housing costs across many cities, many Americans are struggling to find an affordable place to live. The startup Rhino is helping to alleviate this problem by providing an alternative to upfront deposits. The firm's co-founder and chairman, Ankur Jain, spoke with us about his vision for the company. So look, housing costs today are one of the biggest financial barriers for any young person in any city across the country. Mm -hmm. The problem is there hasn't been many unique ways to solve it, right? And so if you've heard the stat, I'm sure people say all the time, I mean, half of millennials have no savings. 
And yet just to move into an apartment, you're talking about first month rent right. and then thousands of dollars on top of that for a security deposit. Right. I mean, if you were to guess how much money is locked away in security deposits today, what would you think? Well, I know because you told us the uh, number. Tens of billions of dollars. We're talking $45 billion of cash sitting in escrow accounts, locked away from landlords and tenants, money that does nothing for the economy at a time where people need that money most. Mm -hmm. When you rent a car, you pay your $20 a day to Hertz, mm -hmm. but you don't put up a $20,000 cash deposit in case you get into an accident. You have insurance. Yeah. So we just took that concept and applied it to housing. Right. And so all of a sudden, instead of paying thousands of dollars to move into an apartment, you can pay $5 a month for insurance. The landlord is protected and the renters save thousands of dollars. And just to put that into context, last year alone, we gave back $100 million just in our first year mm -hmm. back to renters using this type of product. Okay, so they then have cash to use. Their cash flow in yeah. improves. Was this a hard sell to, to landlords? Uh, how, did you have to you know, really talk to them and convince the first one to sign on before others would follow? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. You would think this is such a complicating sell because landlords generally don't like change. Correct. But in this particular case, security deposits are actually a pretty big pain for owners as well. You have to manage separate accounts. You have to file all the regulatory compliance. So all of a sudden, you have the same level of coverage and protection mm. without any of the hassle. And now you can fill your apartments with more young people who can afford the monthly rent but may not have the savings. But just so I understand your business model, then are you taking on some of that risk? So should, exactly should, the, right. should the renter you know, trash the apartment yeah. or somehow uh, not make good yeah. on, on their end of the bargain? You're the one that then would compensate yeah. the landlord. So it's the same thing as any sort of like taking a renter's right. insurance. Right. You can't light your couch on fire and file an insurance claim. Right. Right. So well, in this we case, in this case, the renter. Uh, has insurance, and they're protected from any wear and tear or accidental damage that might happen. So you don't have to worry about all these little things. But the owner is protected no matter what. And if the renter does something like skip out on rent, the landlord's protected, but the renter's still liable to reimburse that. Um, but to put this into perspective, just by changing this one thing in housing policy, mm -hmm. right, to give every renter the choice to use insurance instead of cash deposits, mm -hmm. we can create the single largest cash injection back into this generation Ever. Mm -hmm. We're talking $45 billion back into the economy, back into the pockets of young people without changing tax codes, without creating any subsidy program, and just by letting the market open up. How exactly did you come up with this idea? <laughs> I mean, it's just one of these, again, it was, we were comparing housing to other products like car rentals. I mean, mm -hmm. there is no other industry today left other than housing where you're still paying by check. Mm -hmm. You're still putting up cash deposits. I mean, this is just one of these old, antiquated markets. Right. Are you disrupting anyone by doing this? Is anyone losing out by, by your changing the way that people yeah. go about this? No, it's a great question. Conceptually, there's less money in escrow accounts, but nobody really makes money on escrow accounts, right? And so this is one of those unique things where, as a private sector company, we had to develop a business where landlords were protected mm -hmm. and tenants. And I think this is why, by the way, it's such a bipartisan thing as well. Um, and did you guys see the news yesterday? Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Yeah. So what's happened a couple months ago, we actually put out a policy proposal saying, what if state and local elected officials mm -hmm. could finally do something about housing affordability? I mean, this is such a sensitive topic. You have such right. a polarizing thing. Anything that's good for tenants is bad for owners and vice versa. So, we'll make you look good. Yeah. What yeah. if you could now solve that problem? The U.S. beer market is a $100 billion business. 
but it's seen as growth taper off as consumer tastes change. Sales volume is projected to decline by about 1% annually, according to data from market research company Euromonitor. But one of the country's largest craft brewers has a plan to adapt to changing consumer tastes by expanding their hard seltzer offerings. We talked about it with Boston Beer Company CEO Dave Berwick and started by asking him what he thought was behind the hard seltzer craze and if it was more of a passing fad or a long-term future for his company. One word, the, cons you know, the consumer is really behind it. I mean, consumers today, millennials, say 21 to 35 year olds are drinking very differently than their forebears did. And really they're looking to substitute be other you know, beverages for beer during certain occasions. In this case, seltzer, it, it, it attacks a couple trends that are really important for millennials. It's about health and wellness, it's about variety. And it's actually really refreshing. So in, in, in effect, hard seltzer is really becoming sort of the light beer for, for millennials right now. That's an interesting way of putting it. So how do you balance growth um, in this category with spending costs? Because of course, the hard seltzer category has a lot of competition. There are a lot of brands duking it out there. So in order to stand out, you'll need to spend. Talk about that, that strategy. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, it's, um, there's really two brands, um, uh, White Claw and, and Truly are the two brands that have really been about 80 share of the category from the beginning. And the beginning is like only four years ago. So those two brands have, have stood out, but others are coming in. And I think what we have to do is a number of things to, to build a brand is really, you know, marketing one-on-one is you got to have a great product. Taste really matters in beverages and, and in food, of course. Uh, we just reformulated uh, all, of our, all of our 13 flavors this fall, as, you know, to, to acknowledge that, that, that taste matters. I think awareness in the category is really low. So traditional media, TV, social media, digital, to, to build awareness of a brand and explain to people what, you know, what is this category? What are the types of occasions where you might, you might want to consume it? I think continued innovation is also really important too. So how do you continue to innovate to bring new, whether it be new flavors, new types of experiences. And in, in our case, we just launched a lemonade uh, seltzer. So how do you continue to get consumers interested in the brand, uh, make them aware of it and try to build differentiation versus the other brands that are out there? Dave, another trend besides seltzer and different varieties uh, is you see people uh, substituting beer consumption for cannabis consumption, maybe feeling less hungover in the morning. How do you see that from a competitive or opportunity standpoint? And as the laws develop in the U.S., how do you see yourself uh, playing into that space? Yeah, we see, I mean, right now, it's really hard to tell if it's making any impact. Go to, you know, so you go to Colorado, California, you don't really see a, a major impact on, on alcoholic beverages mm. per se, but it's still very early. I think cannabis and beverages in the U.S. is not going to be reality for, for a number of years. So I think for us, right now, right now, we see a lot of opportunity. Of course, we want to grow our beer business, right. uh, but we see a gold mine and a gold rush, if you will, in hard seltzer. So that's really our focus. That's where we're putting our resources. That's where we're putting our efforts. We do some R&D and some stuff behind the scenes on cannabis. But right now, hard seltzer is taking the entire category by storm. It was probably about a $2 billion business last year, just in the fourth year. This year, 2020, we expect it to be a $4 billion wow. business in the U.S. Right, and I'm glad Joe brought up cannabis because overall, Americans are drinking less, even with the advent of hard seltzer. Uh, certainly, this is something that you are looking at very carefully. Are you concerned about the decline? What do you think is driving it? And is it temporary or is it something that could last longer than that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's happened before, of course, and most of the time it's temporary. But again, I go back to uh, to the millennial consumer. 
Um, really, you know, three things. They've, as I said, they value health and wellness. They care about variety, and actually, they are drinking less, um, but they want to drink better, and they're willing to pay up. So I think, to the extent that we can provide premium brands at premium price points, um, that's you know, we can we can capture the dollars. And at the end of the day, it's really about the dollars. And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.